Welcome to the RX Podcast, sponsored by RX Coffee. RX Coffee is specialty-grade, zero-defect coffee, sustainably sourced, fresh roasted, delivered straight to your door. Find us online at drinkrxcoffee.com. Use discount code PODCAST to get 15% off your first order. Our guest today is Todd Goodwin. He is one of only 2% of board-certified hypnotists. Really enjoy talking to this guy. You can find out more information about their practice at MiamiHypnosisCenter.com. We talk about everything from human behavior to hypnosis. Really enjoyed this conversation. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into it. Welcome to the RX Podcast and our guest, Todd Goodwin. And we're rolling. RX Podcast, Todd Goodwin, Miami Hypnosis Center. Not live, but we're here recording. One of only 2% of board-certified hypnotists. Welcome to the RX Podcast. Thank you, Connor. So you were just telling me a minute ago uh, you're about to embark on a new journey in life, but one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast with you is because part of the theme of this RX Podcast is helping people build better humans, very health and fitness-related, and your sole purpose of your job is to really help people out, and people have a misconception of what hypnosis is, the benefits of it. I've sure. done it in the past with you, and the way I've tried to describe it to people is it's not what you think. It's not like you're just on stage, you're doing a bunch of things, people tell you to go rob a bank, whatever it might be. <laughs> it's more like a, a time distortion of what seems like five minutes might be 30 minutes, and it's more like a really relaxation. I, I always felt like I was in that, that stage where you're not sure if you're asleep, you're not sure if you're awake, but uh, I'll let you kind of explain what hypnosis is, maybe address some of the misconceptions of it, and talk a little bit about your practice and you know, I've always enjoyed talking to you about neuro-linguistic programming and psychology oh, and things sure, along those yeah. lines, too. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's been a while. Um, yeah, so I can just jump right in. Basically, hypnosis is the most attention-grabbing aspect of of what we do. You know, whenever we go to a, any kind of event, someone says, what do you do? You know, it's not, oh, I'm a lawyer, oh, I'm a realtor. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but when you say you're a hypnotist, immediately that seems to catch people's attention. And either they're they're uncomfortable, like, ooh, don't look at me or something, which they're, is... They're afraid you're going to hypnotize them. Yeah, and I said, well, usually people have to pay me a lot of money f to have the privilege of being hypnotized. So I don't, you know, I don't have that issue so much with, with that reaction. Usually it's more, oh, wow, does that really work? Or, uh, oh, can I have your card? You know, or what's, you know, what's that like? I've seen that on TV. So there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about hypnosis and... The simplest way to explain it is that hypnosis is a natural state of mind that we're all capable of. That is basically a speed learning or rapid learning state. And it's a state of mind, uh, as you kind of alluded to earlier, that it's somewhere between the state we're in now, which is alert and focused, and being asleep. So technically, when someone's hypnotized, they're awake. Uh, but it's a different brain state, which they've measured through uh, EEGs and, and other, you know, functional MRI, and they can see there are differences in, in brain activity. And essentially, it does feel very relaxed uh, or very relaxing, but that's actually not even required as part of what hypnosis is. But hypnosis is something that people experience when they're daydreaming, zoning out while they're driving, and they're like, oh, how to get here? You know, and they weren't aware for a moment consciously, but subconsciously they were still driving the car, uh, when people react emotionally to a movie or a video game or reading a novel and they get excited or, or tear up or 
something like that, that emotional reactivity is an indicator of being hypnotized. So, or if you watch a commercial and you start getting hungry, you know, maybe they're showing melted chocolate pouring over something and then you're, you know, you're really hungry, you want chocolate, that's, or your mouth waters. That's another form of uh, a hypnotic effect. So people are going in and out of a state of hypnosis pretty much all the time throughout the day. Virtually everyone can be hypnotized. It's completely safe. And the, the really important thing is not the hypnosis itself, because we all do that. It's what are you, what are you exposing yourself to information-wise when you're in that state? So whereas if people watch the news... Usually they go into a state of hypnosis. Actually, just watching TV will do it. You know, within five to ten minutes, typically people their brainwave state has changed and they are in a form of tunnel vision. So you can get completely immersed in a TV show, not be aware of what's going on around you. And while that may be fine if you're just watching something fairly, you know, innocuous, it can be dangerous if you're watching a violent movie or the news which is really designed to manipulate you emotionally so that you buy stuff on the commercial breaks then you become hypnotized to be afraid or hypnotized to be a consumer or you find yourself regurgitating all their information in a later conversation because that does it when you're hypnotized like you're saying it's the, the learning that you get during that right so if you're in a state of hypnosis during the news would that fall into your subconscious and some of that information might be stored there for later use that you might not even want there Potentially. I mean, it's called programming for a reason, TV programming. I mean, most people don't think about it, but when you watch TV, that's programming. So you're being programmed. And I, I usually advocate people don't watch the news. Don't, you know, live in a bubble. But, you know, getting headlines once a week or something is usually sufficient. I say in South Florida, the most important thing you need to know is a, is a hurricane coming. Other than that, you don't need to know the news today. Um, I mean, if you're a trader and a stock market trader, that may be different. But for most people, 30 minutes or an hour of news a day is simply a recipe for higher stress. So coming back to hypnosis is basically we all experience hypnosis. The question is, how are you going to use that state to enhance your life, if that's your goal, uh, to improve certain parts of your life, how to remove certain negative programming that you've learned early in your life when you were hypnotized by your parents or teachers when you were a child or society, you know, limiting beliefs, things that disempower you like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or, you know, if, if daddy left when I was a little boy, then, you know, maybe I'm not worthy of love or my coach yelled at me a lot, little league. So I know I'll never be good at, you know, sports, something like that. So we learn these things early on that uh, usually end up disempowering us and form the root of most of our emotional and behavioral problems. So while a lot of what we work with in our practice on the surface looks like, you know, bad habits or addictions, um, emotional challenges like anxiety or stress or phobias, low self-confidence or motivation, really those are just symptoms. So the behavioral symptoms, someone drinks too much, they eat too much, uh, and that's why they're overweight or they have issues in their life. That behavior is a symptom of an emotional challenge, usually stress or anxiety or fear or guilt or grief or trauma of some kind. And then that emotional challenge is also a symptom of some belief system or way of thinking. 
in which case you need to realize that that belief, which is the ultimate cause of their problems, is something they learn in their life. Because no one's born with low self-worth. No one's born craving alcohol or junk food. No one is born hating a ethnicity or race or one in person over another. These are all things that we learned. And if we learned it, we can unlearn it. And hypnosis is simply just, a, uh, as, as I use it, what some people call hypnotherapy or you know, uh, consulting hypnotism. It's basically the same thing, but essentially we're, we're helping people access a, an important, uh, powerful learning state to effectively unlearn or dehypnotize them, unlearn these, these toxic and unhealthy states of mind so that they can free themselves of the emotional and behavioral problems without relying on willpower or lengthy talk therapy or medication to do so. Now, I'm sure that uh, it varies from person to person, but generally speaking, if someone does hypnotherapy, would it, how many sessions does it take, or is this a prolonged thing? How, how does that usually work? Yeah, that is completely dependent on the, on the individual and the issue, and that's one thing we determine when we do an initial consultation with someone. But that is a very common question. If I had to generalize, I would say it's very brief. I can tell you that, but it is a process and it depends. But I would say that most of the people we see when they present with whatever issue they have, we see four to seven times, you know, over the course of, you know, two months, one to two months. Now, is there a maintenance aspect to it also? Like, you know, getting the oil change in your car to come back once every year, twice a year, depending on how much you're driving? It's not necessary. It's always helpful. But it's important to remember that think about, think about a gardening uh, or, or a landscaping um, metaphor. If you have weeds growing in your garden, you can analyze the weeds. You, know, you, could, you could analyze the, the type of weeds they are and the genus and the species and what particular strain of weed they might be and based on their height and how they're growing how long they've been there and where they blew in from and how they got there to begin with. Um, you could study it. You could predict what will happen if nothing changes with that weed. It just continues to grow and overtake the garden. And that, first for many people, is like talk therapy. It might be interesting and it might reveal some certain things, but ultimately you're still left with the weed. So just analyzing it's not usually going to change much. It's just going to give awareness. And while awareness is important, it's only half the, the solution. You could put weed killer in there, you know, to, to kill the weed, to poison it, but you may end up poisoning the flowers too. And that would be like certain pharmaceuticals. You know, a lot of psychiatric medications, while certainly very helpful and necessary for a small subset of the population, are overprescribed typically. And many of them are addictive and carry a lot of side effects and very difficult to uh, withdraw from. So that would be like the weed killer. It may accomplish it, but it may have a lot of undesirable side effects. There's, there's positive thinking, which is you know pretending like the weed's not there, and you can just sort of ignore it and say, no, no, it's just flowers. It's only flowers. But when you open your eyes, the weed's still there. And then there's the willpower-based behavior modification. And I, I have a master's degree in nutrition, so I was a nutritionist briefly in the late 90s, and anyone who has attempted to change their eating habits or any behavior knows how difficult it can be, like you're fighting yourself. 
So you try to use willpower, you try to use rational thinking, you try to force yourself. And usually that doesn't work very well. And that would be like, you know, stomping up and down on the weeds to kill them. But as long as the roots, which you can't see usually, they're underneath the surface of the soil, as long as those roots, Connor, as long as they're intact, the weed's going to keep growing. So it, while it may be interesting where it came from and what kind of weed it is and what the implications of the weed in the garden will be, ultimately, as long as those damn roots are there, that thing's going to keep growing. So you have to reach down and pull that shit up, basically, right? right? You pull it up by the roots, and once the roots are gone, they don't come back. So my point is with the maintenance is if you're trimming weeds, then you do need to do a lot of maintenance. But if you pull the weeds up by the roots and you, and you get all of it, then, and that's our goal, they don't come back. Now you might get another weed coming in at some point in the future because we live dynamic lives, we're dynamic people. So we may have new things happening that affect us that we need to tend to. You know, we do have a lot of clients who over time come back, you know, maybe two years later and for something else and say, oh, you helped me with, you know, my issue with sexual abuse that I had when I was a kid and you helped me two years ago and, you know, now I want to quit smoking or, you know, I have a fear of heights or something like that or, you know, so, but usually when we effectively get the issue and we resolve it, it doesn't come back. I have a question for you. Uh, I'm not sure if I ever asked you this years ago, but I've heard this, and I don't know if it's true. I've heard that the more people think they can't be hypnotized, it's easier for them to get hypnotized. Is that true? That's interesting. I don't. I don't know. Um, I think I had that feeling when I walked in here years ago, and we did the hip, hip, hypnosis. That I thought, oh, I can't be hypnotized, and I went under real quick. Well, here's the thing. I would say that. First of all, like I said before, most everyone can be hypnotized. Typically, the more intelligent you are, not that you need to be, you know, not that you have to be above average intelligence, but the more intelligent you are, and potentially the more imaginative, although that's not as necessary, the easier it'll be to be hypnotized. So I think if people say, oh, I can't, and I've heard this a lot, I can't be hypnotized because I have a very you know, a very strong mind, or, or I like to be in control. Um, that's not going to necessarily stop them from being hypnotized. Again, again, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. I didn't say that before, but so as a hypnotist, I am working with the person to help them achieve a goal. It's teamwork. It's a cooperative process. So if the person for some reason wants to prove they can't be hypnotized, they will win every time. They'll, they'll be right. If they, if they say, I'm willing to let you take the lead, like a dance, you know, one person leads, the other one follows, but both have to be willing to engage in it. And, and when either one wants to stop, the dance is over. If people see it that way, and they're willing to not let go of control, because the hypnotist doesn't control the client, but if the individual is willing to let go of the lead and say, you know what, I'm not gonna try to take charge of this, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna allow you to lead me, then it works great. Usually fear is the only thing that will stop someone from being hypnotized, unless they're watching the news, of course. I'd assume that people that do a lot of things fitness-related might be easier to hypnotize, correct me if I'm wrong, because they get into that flow state, whether it's the running people, yoga, people that lift weights, because you kind of get into this, it's like a mass hypnosis or meditative state you can reach sometimes, well, especially with yoga, um, but also running, where you reach this flow state where you're just kind of going through the motions. Next thing you know, 20 minutes feel like a few minutes have passed. 
Well, sure. It's definitely similar to a flow state. I don't know if I would say people who are in fitness are any more hypnotizable or would go into it easier. Because remember, almost everyone experiences it anyway. There's, there's a fun little statistic. The numbers may be a little outdated, but I often quote to people that uh, in the United States, over $60 billion a year, with a B, is spent on hypnosis. But that doesn't go to people like me. It goes to the video games and the movies. So if you total up the the revenue for video game industry and the movies, and we're not even talking about, you know, novels and certain TV shows, like you know Netflix and all that. I'm just talking about classical you know, Hollywood box office movies and video games. It's about sixty billion dollars domestically, and people are doing that. With the exception of documentaries and things like that, which are a small portion, they're doing it for the imaginative and emotional experience of experiencing that, that, that video game or that movie. And so people go to a movie, they play the video game, and they get immersed in it. And however much time passes, you, when you're in that subjective experience, you kind of forget that you're in a movie theater or that you're sitting there with you know, your video game controller or what have you, and you feel like you're in the action. And when that happens, or when reading a really good like Harry Potter novel or romance novel and you get pulled into it, that is like that is a hypnotic state. You don't need a hypnotist to do it. Um, you know, again, we're just talking about you're getting different content in your mind that you're learning, and there's nothing wrong with that, but but that's a hypnotic state. So I think it really doesn't matter what kind of person is, you know, what they do with their life. Most people can be hypnotized in that way. And really what it, what I say is come back down to the awareness of what you're putting in your mind. You know, people talk about junk food and, oh, we shouldn't drink that, we shouldn't eat that, and people who are health conscious. We want to have, you know, a certain type of coffee that's X, Y, and Z, or we want to have a certain type of organic food. And that's great. It's just that what are you feeding your head? You know, if you eat organic, but you watch the news constantly or you're constantly exposing yourself to stressful um, input mentally, then that could potentially be worse than eating fast food. You know, so food is information. It informs our genes. And what we normally think of as information is information. That also informs our genes in terms of certain things expressing or not expressing. There's lots of studies on epigenetics now, which is how the environment, the chemical environment of the cell, which is triggered by external environments like food, psychology, uh, pollution, all of those things actually affect the expression of certain genes, the function of cells. So our physiology is affected potentially as much by what we're thinking as by what we're eating. And I think that's something where today in 2018, people are not aware of that nearly as much as they will be in the future. And that's really the major, the next major improvement or, or step forward in healthcare, I believe, uh, or really more from a grassroots point of view, is wellness from the mental point of view. And the causative factors of psychosomatic conditions, you know, like 80-something percent of health conditions are stress-mediated or caused by stress or influenced by stress. So if you can address that, whether you're using hypnosis to remove the stress-inducing beliefs or make peace with something that happened in the past or accept that you have no control in the world or you're just doing something else, managing that the emotional side, the mental side is critically important to not only quality of life, but length of life too. I think that it's interesting you're mentioning so much about the mental state of wellness because 
in the fitness world, everything's based primarily around working out and diet. But there's also the sleep aspect that's a huge function of it. Then everybody always talks about the power of positive thought. You see all these people nowadays with all these quotes all over the internet. I mean, obviously, we post about them on my social media also. But, it, but that's a real thing where it's, uh, you know, it, it, the positive thought aspect and the wellness of, of thinking is a big contributor to how good is your workout going to be? How much are you going to be able to sleep? Are you going to be laying in bed late at night stressed out about things that are going to happen? Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important that people do those things. You know, read a book in bed or listen to it. I listen to podcasts all the time before I go to bed because there's darkness. And I'm just hearing a voice and it allows my – it puts me almost in a hypnosis state sure. after 10, 15 minutes. And I'll, I'll set the sleep timer on it and fall asleep. But I'm in a dark room, so I don't have those blue lights going. And I'm not staring at something reading it so it's just me in my mind and i'm listening to something interesting and if i do fall asleep and still playing then maybe subconsciously it's feeding me something positive i always try to make sure it's something i can learn about too for sure yeah i think that's great so yeah i mean and that and that's the thing is the mind and the body are not separate so it's not about oh i need to take care of my mind or i need to take care of my body or i should do both they're connected you know your mental states can influence how good your workout is your mental state is going to determine how well you digest your food. You know, a lot of gastrointestinal disorders like uh, IBS, gastritis, even Crohn's disease, colitis, all of these things are influenced by stress and in some cases may be caused by them. Immune problems, uh, autoimmune issues, potentially even cancer is influenced by stress levels. Elevated stress, especially when it's chronic, suppresses immune function, which makes someone more likely to develop or proliferate cancer, more likely to get infections or have difficulty healing. So it's um, having the right attitude and it's not, you know, oh, have a positive attitude, a can-do attitude. You right, can it's do not anything. all about the book, The Secret. You can't just think your way into anything. It's a combination of multiple factors. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned social media. If I can go on a little bit of a tear here, you may have to hold sure. me back. But go ahead. You know, this is this is a completely, <clears throat> completely modern phenomenon with Facebook, Instagram, and and the like, where people it's, tend to it's post. designed to be addicting too, for sure. And there's a good reason for it. And without getting into the the chemistry of it too much, although that means usually when I say that I'm going to get into it. But anyway, That's okay. Uh, but basically, what happens is people uh, post generally positive things now some people complain and then there's there's an aspect of that as well but people post these selfies where they're looking great how many people do you do you see post a selfie of their beer gut or their belly hanging out they do that's usually a comedian exactly and so usually they're they're posting their best and there's a narcissistic quality that distorts what people viewing social media are actually perceiving. In other words, notice there's a like button on Facebook and a love and all that, but there's no dislike button. Because how many times have you seen something that you're like, you there's watch- on YouTube though. There's a thumbs down on YouTube. That's true, that's true. But again, that's that's Google, right. not Facebook. And, and you're either thumbs up or thumbs down. And I think that's actually healthier because at least you're giving honest feedback. On Facebook, it's not about honest feedback. It's about- building a community to support advertising. And so it's not about accuracy or honesty. It's about 
getting everyone to reinforce other people. If you see something and someone is being super self-serve, like, you know, they're, they're showing off their new manicure, you know, on their, on the steering wheel. And of course they happen to notice that there's like a BMW insignia below that. So they're really showing off that they're driving a BMW. It's not about the red nail polish, but it's under the guise of that. This is supposed to, this is a narcissistic tendency that people in, in our generation um, or this generation, probably more than for quite a while before has a problem with true self-worth. They may think highly of themselves, but that's superficial. And it's kind of like our president has very high self-esteem, but probably very low self-worth. And so these people have to overcompensate by talking about how great they are just to prove it to themselves and other people so that they feel okay with themselves. So on social media, when you see all this positive, I'm doing air quotes, positive stuff, how great everything, oh, I'm so blessed, my life is so, oh my God, I'm so grateful. I know a lot of people who post that and they don't believe that at all. Yeah, there's a lot of fakers out there. Right. But and sometimes the person that posts every day, like positive quotes and this and that, those are usually the people, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, from my experience that are usually the most miserable because it's like they're trying to brainwash themselves or posting all these things. It's just like a fake thing that they're doing. But yeah, when it's interesting because I, I remember hearing some time ago that Norman Vincent Peale, who was the author of The Power of Positive Thinking, supposedly when he wrote that book decades ago, which sold millions of copies and it was, you know, like the seminal work in, in the mid 20th century on positive thinking, he admitted towards the end of his life that he was a depressed man. And he wrote the book to cure himself of depression. And while he went out and gave seminars about thinking positively, he would espouse all the benefits of positive thinking, how you can be positive and you can live a positive life and be prosperous and happy and you know, nice all the time and all these one-sided kind of fantasies of reality, which doesn't exist. You can't be one-sided. You can't be happy all the time. I don't care. You know, I'm not a positive thinker. I'm not a negative thinker. I do both, but I try to be balanced. So he was, he was selling with good intentions um, a lot of lies with very good intentions because he did it to help himself. And in theory, it's supposed to help other people. And there is clinical research that shows it's better to be an optimist than a pessimist. Uh, but it doesn't mean you have to be one or the other. You can be balanced. Anyway, so what happens is people who would go to his seminars and read his book would find out, like many people who read The Secret or watched the movie, the vast majority would find out that it doesn't work. And it's not because the idea is necessarily completely flawed. It doesn't mean you should be a pessimist about everything. It just means that if you try to cut away half of yourself, your natural negative side, like the the south pole of a magnet you know every magnet has two sides every coin has two sides you can't eliminate the other side so if someone is trying to be positive all the time and they realize they can't do it and then they're thinking wow that guy is able to do it i must have something wrong with me i, I must be broken i must not get it because i can't seem to get rid of my you know my my self-doubt i can't seem to get rid of my anger or pessimism and then i think there's something wrong What's wrong is not the person having negative thoughts. What's wrong is the person thinking they should be able to get rid of it. So he later admitted that at the end of his life, that basically he was trying to help, but clearly didn't work. And the more someone tries to be positive all the time, the more negativity is going to show up in their awareness. So the people on social media who are always promoting this fantasy, and, and even more than that, they know out of hypocrisy 
that when they post that, they don't feel that a lot of the time. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who says I'm grateful is lying, of course, and, and they may not even consciously be doing it, that they're, that they're being dishonest. But there's a disingenuity about being positive all the time. And, and on social media, usually we see just one side. And we see the new car, but we don't hear about the car accident or how someone, you know, the car blew up and that's how they, you know, they got a new car. In, or the, how the person wrecked the car out of their own fault, and that's why they have a new car. They just show the new car. So what happens is if you if you watch social media, if you're more of a voyeur than an exhibitionist, right, and you look at it and you see all this positive stuff, you might begin to think that your life is kind of boring or that your life sucks or that you're a loser because everyone else has this great body, um, which they may have Facebook, they may have Photoshopped, on their and photo the angles the lighting all those before and after photos totally or they bullshit, exactly or they might show a picture where they're with some famous person or doing something and and or talking about how successful their business is and you and you don't even know how much of that is really true and you look at your life which you perceive holistically as you know the the, the desirable and undesirable positive and negative stuff but you're looking at only the positive in someone else so this makes you feel by contrast like you're in bad shape and you feel bad. And what do you do when you feel bad? You become more dependent on potential quick fixes. And that's where things like addictive behaviors and chemicals and those kind of things come in. And then the flip side on social media, which is also very unhealthy, is that some people use it as a platform for emotional support. You know, when someone in their family, the dog so to, dies. To reaffirm their beliefs also. Yeah, that's very true. And here's the thing, and also just to to create, it creates a dependency on, it's like a support group for a lot of people. And isn't that, isn't that bad psychologically these days that people turn to social media platforms for the emotional support versus their life-to-life, day-to-day social networks of having the friends and family around you? Isn't that damaging? It's not as good? Well, I mean, there are benefits, clearly. I mean, if someone is truly isolated, then having social media or people who can interact with them would be potentially life-saving if they're in bad shape. So I can't say it's across the board bad, but it is. it can be very unhealthy. Um, I know people who something tragic, let's say, happened in their life, and they post about it. And they get a whole bunch of people reaffirming them and saying, oh, it's okay, you know, everything will be great. So basically, now on the surface, that's good. You know, people are reaffirming them, they're, they're, they're supporting them. But ultimately, if that person learns at an unconscious level that when I'm hurting and I talk about it, everyone rewards me, then at a subconscious level, this person learns, oh, I get love when I'm suffering. So I'm going to suffer more, so I get more love. I'm going to complain more about my problems and then get all of my, you know, get the emotional support, get the brain chemistry, you know, the dopamine and the endorphins in the brain, which is how people get hooked on things like social media or drugs or gambling. And they, there's this dependency that the disempowered person, the person who needs support, what they get from talking about, oh, you know, this month I, you know, I got the flu again. It's been a tough winter. Uh, sick again and people are like oh it's okay you can do it you go girl you got this <laughs> right, and, right. And, and so what happens is people learn that when I complain when I when I show off my wounds people pat me on the back no one usually says they no, no one usually comments get over yourself you know you've been complaining for 
for months, get, you know, go do something about it because that person would be completely flamed by everyone around them. Right. Or, or unfriended. There's a saying you know? that uh, the only thing more contagious than a positive attitude is a negative one. But do, do you think yeah. that the reason why people do this, <coughs> I'm just thinking from a psychological aspect, like kids, for example, they'll fall down, they'll get back up if nobody sees them, right? But the minute they fall down, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Are you okay? Then they start crying. They make a big deal out of it. So maybe it, it stems from some of that subconsciously from when you're a child and you get the attention because they're not really hurt. But I guess that's the same, you know, maybe your receptors are firing in the same type of way because you're getting that attention. Yeah, it could be. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And then, of course, definitely when, you know, if a child falls, if they're not really hurt, the parent can tell that they're not really hurt. And usually when they fall, they're not. It's really best to not give them a lot of attention. You say, okay, all right, well, you're all right. Let's get up. And the kid will usually look at the parent for input on how to behave. And if the parent is upset, the kid plays right into that. So you're very right that that could be where it's learned. But people can learn at all times in life or unlearn. So if someone learns from some emotional challenge in life that being coddled and supported is a real benefit to them. I mean, it is a benefit. It feels good to know that we're, you know, liked or we think we're liked. Um, they're going to keep doing it. And this is part of the trap of support groups, you know, divorce support groups, anxiety support groups, uh, support groups for people who have, you know, had a miscarriage. I mean, I say that, I, I know someone who did that, who had that, and she was in the support group, online support group for, three years or two years and basically said that she and her, those people in a support group, which all just, and they didn't have anyone, any expert in mental health kind of moderating it or mediating. It was really just the group of women. They, she said, well, people in the real world don't understand. And if you look at what, what she's saying, the real world, which means if you're not in the fantasy world of the support group, the imbalanced perception of the support group, where life is unkind and so you need to lift each other up, then you just don't get it. So you, who have never experienced something like this, you've never experienced the loss of a child like that, you don't get it. Don't talk to me about getting over my issues because you don't understand. And while I have compassion for someone who's gone through that, that's a very disempowering mindset for them to have. Because any of us can get over our issues if we shift the way we think about it. And if people defend their problem or defend the, the quote, treatment of that problem and then become effectively addicted to the treatment, then that itself is a new problem. So they're either addicted to the treatment and it's not just the medical treatment because some, you know, we talked about some drugs are addictive as treatments, but really the more addictive is the social reinforcement. You just got my mind thinking about being younger, and I'm, I'm not much of a drinker at all anymore these days. But back you know, in college and afterwards, it was ritual and social um, influence from it where it's like, okay, do great on a test, let's go out and drink. You do bad on a test, let's go out and drink. That's so and funny. then that carries over to the professional world. Let's go out to happy hour on the weekends. Let's go to this. And everything's built into these rituals in society that you get positive reinforcement to do it. You're having trouble with a relationship, let's go have a drink. But you're putting a depressant into your body that's going to mask it for the short term, but it's going to exacerbate that problem going forward. And then there's that 
if you have that, I guess, addictive personality, you fall into those stages of addiction where maybe you weren't physically addicted to something, but because of the social uh, influence and the ritualistic nature of it, that you fall into these patterns of uh, maybe it's using a drug or a pill or alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny that you mentioned that because the seminar I was telling you that my wife, Gina, who's also board certified hypnotist, and I just did a couple weeks ago, one of the one of the examples we gave was, oh, you know, our team just won the championship. Let's go get wasted. Oh, our team just lost. Let's go get wasted. Or I just got fired. Oh, that's too bad. Let's go get drunk. You know, let's go get wasted. Oh, I just got a promotion. Hey, that's great. Let's go get drunk. And it's true. And so the point is that those rational lies, I'm sorry, rationalizations, rational lies, rationalizing. See the word there? You can yeah. play with that. The rationalization of why we drink is usually completely wrong. We're not drinking because, you know, we had a tough day. We're not drinking because we got fired or we got a promotion or we're getting married or we're getting divorced. And some people, when they get divorced, they can celebrate it. Others, they need sympathy. Whatever the case is, that's not why. We're just using that as a justification for why we're doing something. We don't really understand why we're doing it. People usually drink alcohol. I'm not talking about one glass of wine. I'm talking about excessively for one reason. They're feeling uncomfortable at some level. They may not be aware of it. And they found in their life that when they drink excessively or even a couple drinks, they feel better. It's that simple. Followed by feeling bad for a day or two. <laughs> yes, but isn't, isn't it so easy to forget that? Because the immediate gratification is, is solved uh, with by feeling better. And this is the same thing as, you know, I, when I was maybe 20 pounds heavier than I am today, um, you know, I'm in reasonably good shape now, but when I was, you know, in college, 20, 20 years old, I was going through a really difficult time. And, uh, you know, I was depressed. I was anxious. I had really low self-esteem and self-confidence. And anyway, grades were bad. Social life was worse. You know, it was one of those times where sort of everything caved in on me, it seemed. And my eating habits were really bad. But I did have one thing that helped me, which was ice cream. And so, you know, Baskin Robbins ice cream, I was drink, eating, drinking. Um, I was eating maybe a gallon every three or four days of that uh, chocolate mint and chocolate chip ice cream. So I had indecision also. You see, I was very indecisive, so I just got both. Right. Why choose? Did you add cereal to it? Have I you ever didn't. Done that? I didn't. I'll have to, next time around, I'll have well, to Well, the reason that. why I bring that up on the first podcast uh, the guest Christian Bizzotto who owns a gym and he's lost over a hundred pounds. He talked about when he used to eat a ton and he was extremely overweight. He said he would eat ice cream and add cereal to it and get a giant tub and just add the cereal to it. Hey. That's why. So this is like a reoccurring theme. <laughs> well, maybe that's why he was that much heavier than I was. I was only, you know, cereal, yeah. I had trouble with buttoning my More pants. More carbs but and sugar. Totally. But anyway, the point is with that is that that gave me immediate, it, it made me feel better for 30 minutes or an hour. But then afterwards I realized, you know, oh shit, I just gained another pound. And maybe the next day I'd feel kind of crappy from like a sugar crash. But yet we still have this desire to do that, to meet our immediate needs, yeah, even at the expense of our long term. Everybody will sacrifice a few seconds to a minute, minutes of mouth pleasure to do something that's horrible for them and make them feel bad sometimes immediately afterward. Yeah. So I do want to address one thing you mentioned. I don't believe there is such a thing as an addictive personality. I was going to ask you that question. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's BS. 
Um, basically, people have been telling me I have that my whole life. Like when I do something, I'm I'm a hundred percent or zero. There's not much in between. It's like, oh, you have an addictive personality. You do this, you do that. Well, hopefully, you've never had a therapist tell you that because when you have an authority tell you something, or maybe a parent, someone with real authority, where you're giving your power away to that person um, and letting them influence you, you could have been hypnotized into believing it. And if you weren't as self-aware as you are, or weren't as conscientious of your own thoughts then you might have accepted or swallowed hook, line, and sinker the lie that you have or are an addictive personality. Quite honestly, I think that's bullshit. I mean, I can't speak to you specifically, but in general, I don't think that's accurate. I think what when someone says an addictive personality, they're referring to someone who easily is attached to a variety of different addictive tendencies, right? They could be chemical, they could be personal, it could be behavioral or any combination. You know, it could be, oh, I'm a sex addict. Oh, I'm a, you know, social media addict. Oh, I'm a gambler. I drink, I smoke, I do drugs. I uh, can't stop watching something on Netflix, whatever. Really, ultimately, it's all the same in terms of brain chemistry for the most part. And so it's not about addictive personality. It's not a personality type. It is simply a sign that that person in that case is disempowered and the degree of their disempowerment dictates how many behaviors or interactions with external sources of immediate pleasure they need in order to feel okay. So the person who, you know, just smokes and doesn't have any other, quote, addictive tendencies might not be labeled as an addictive personality. But the person who, you know, smokes a pack a day, tends to overeat, has you know, compulsive drinking tendencies and goes to the casino a lot, most people would say, wow, that guy is, you know, an addict or an addictive personality or something. When really, I will say, if you show me a person like that, I will point to someone who is truly unfulfilled in their life. They have this ongoing, gnawing, underlying stress or anxiety. They're unhappy on some level, no matter how they might portray the opposite on the surface. And until or unless that person addresses that underlying unhappiness and fixes that based on their thought process, they're going to continue to struggle and with the addictions and they will usually go from one to the other. They may quit smoking, but they're going to eat more. They may quit drinking, but they're going to do something else because the truth is those behaviors that are you know undesirable perhaps are actually serving a good purpose to help the person reduce stress temporarily or feel better. So until the cause, the, the roots again, until the roots are addressed, then the superficial symptoms however antisocial or self-destructive or unhealthy they might be, are going to continue to come back. And so it's not an addictive personality, but it's the extent to which that person needs those all those different things in order to be okay. And the more someone needs it, the more diverse or intense their tendencies are likely to be. You know, maybe one thing is not enough. They need to have like 10 different addictive things. And if those people can find, maybe they like the excitement and the risk-taking, but if they can replace those bad behaviors with healthy behaviors it would be good for them so as i got older rather than going out on the weekends and drinking at a bar or things like that like you know i go to my friend's gym do some obstacle course racing i go to a yoga class i go for a run you know i go do crossfit there's sure. all these different things there's a million different things you can do out there that are exciting intense because i like those intense things that i'm not going to stay up all night drinking and have a hangover the next day and be a productive member of society and enjoy my life and be happy True. and i'm not against people drinking that's fine there's a time and a place for things. Like I was at a friend's bachelor party a few weeks ago and I was, you know, had a few too many extra drinks. 
I'm sure at his wedding I will too. But on a regular basis, it's just not something for me that I enjoy. And I got caught up in my 20s uh, for the most part. I would go out to these bars or these lounges and these places where uh, it became a ritualistic part where I wasn't even having fun doing it. And I'm there in the moment. I'm like, well, why am I here? Because I, it's almost like I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get caught up in that in life. Yeah. And, and if everyone else is drinking, let's say, as an example, it could be a wedding, a networker, any of those type of situations. And you're not, you kind of feel like you should. Now, you want to hear something interesting? Sure. Or something else interesting? This, this is, see, I said in the beginning that most people, when they hear, oh, you're a hypnotist, they're, they focus on the hypnosis as being the most interesting part. And I've been doing this work for about 11 years, and I can tell you that that's not as interesting to me as the human behavior aspect. Notice mostly we've been talking about human behavior and, and our tendencies emotionally and behaviorally. That, to me, is far more fascinating than hypnosis. They're both really important in the work that I do. It's just that the technique, the technology, the methodology of hypnotism, while making more effective any kind of intervention, is in and of itself not curative if you're not dealing with the real underlying issue. So the assessment of the person's individual issue, the understanding of our the human condition, I think, is far more valuable um, and that's what we're talking about you know that's that awareness that being self-aware that consciousness that so many people lack more and more today that we're asleep due to you know the media and environmental influences and food that numb us and you know those kind of things so you know when I, I totally what was I saying <laughs> talk about the human behavior but to, <laughs> right. to piggyback on your point though I feel like the older you get the more you become self-aware of things and, and look you're not the person you were yesterday or five years ago you're like most people are most people I, I say are trying to improve themselves daily they're not trying to go backwards but it's taken me over three decades to decades to really realize especially living in a city like Miami for 12 years I don't give a shit about the glitz and the glams or certain material things that I used to for sure it's more about okay what's gonna make me happy you know is what I'm doing business-wise or sitting here having a conversation with you talking about all these things because I always enjoy our conversations. Those are the things that make me happy, going out, doing those things. So what's going to make you happy? What's really important in your life? And a lot of people I feel like these days can't really answer those questions because they're caught up, like we talked before, under the guise of social media and they're a slave to the, the looking glass. Like a comedian had a bit one time about if you took people, the pilgrims, and you put them in today's world – and they looked at all these people looking, they think, oh, they're a slave to the looking glass, your computer, your phone, mm-hmm. your TV, everything that you're doing. Um, Being programmed constantly by a little device. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The TV pro. One of the things I definitely want to ask you about, even maybe we lost our train of thought there. No, no, I got it back. But if you want to. <laughs> you got it back? Well, just real I'll quick. let you go, go ahead. Okay. And then I got, a, I, I got a question that I, two questions really, one specific I want to ask you about. So. Okay, so just when I wasn't sure what I was supposed to say, I, what I what I was where my train of thought was, the train came by and picked me up again. So basically, the interesting thing when it comes to drinking alcohol, let's say, is that let's just say you have people going to a networker or a happy hour or or you know a dining event where you're sitting at a table with ten other people, and let's just say you go to that situation and you've decided you know I really don't want to drink anything. I'm going to have water, iced tea. For whatever reason, then that's irrelevant. But everyone else is getting wine or something. And then there's this maybe, you know, maybe you have some kind of discomfort. You're like, uh. and as, as the waiter's going around and pouring wine, coming around to you, you're thinking, hmm, maybe, I, maybe I'll just get wine. You know, because 
we, we don't want to have to explain why we're the only one not drinking and what, what the reason is. And even if it's no one's business and it doesn't mean you're an alcoholic, you just choose not to do it for any reason. We just say, oh, I'll have a wine. And then, then, of course, you think about how is that any different from peer pressure when you're 15? You're still trying to figure out your social identity and you form your identity as you individuate and separate from your family identity, your parents, and rebel against that and forge your identity as part of a social group. And it all depends on whether your social group is going to be the kind that smokes and drinks and gets in trouble or the kind that is maybe more socially acceptable or healthier. But ultimately, a lot of us, if we don't really know who we are at that age, and most don't, we tend to fall in with potentially groups that are bad influences. And I say bad in quotes, but that's what our parents would say. Oh, they're a bad influence. Well, but they make us feel good. They make us feel accepted. And then we associate those behaviors, the smoking average age of smoking when people start is about 16. So that's completely due to a socialization effect and nothing else. Drinking would be that early if it were legal. And so what happens is when we're adults and we're at a social environment and we feel like I really should drink something, not because I really want it, but because if I don't, then I'm going to be the outsider. The outsider. How do you suggest people, everybody, I, I feel like everybody in the business world has been in that situation you're talking about at the dinner table where everybody's ordering, ordering a glass of wine or a drink and you know they want to do a cheers or a toast. And you're sitting there and you're thinking about, well, I want to work out tomorrow or tonight. And I don't want to, I'm on a diet. I don't want to drink. How do you suggest people deal with that mentally? I had a client. Or is it like Nancy Reagan, just say no? Well, yeah. I mean, it's sometimes not that easy, but but yes, strictly speaking, you can just say no. I think it really comes down to what kind of person do you want to be? Now, there are, most people are followers. Most people are secretly begging to be led. Most people are sheep, and there's a shepherd somewhere willing to lead them. And sometimes our shepherds are do not have our best interest at heart, and usually they don't. They have their own. If you are a leader, whatever that means, whether you choose, you choose to be a leader of a company or a leader of a movement or a tribe, or you want to be a leader in your own life and not just a follower that just goes with the flow of whatever the, whatever the waves are bringing in that day into the shore, then you owe it to yourself to follow through with what is important to you. And if working out the next day or avoiding alcohol for a period of time is important, using this example, then to be a leader is to say, in your mind, no matter what anyone else is doing, I'm going to have the soft drink. I'm going to have the water, the iced tea, the spritzer with cranberry juice, whatever it might be, because you are in charge of your life and your leader. You're the leader of yourself. And, and ultimately, you're the one who's going to bear the responsibility and the consequences of your actions. No one else will. If you drink too much, even if it's one drink and it affects your performance the next day, no one else is going to suffer. It's you. So we, when, we, when we kind of regress to this teenage need to be accepted, even if we're a bunch of people in suits and business outfits. I like to call those costumes. Right. Well, then the thing is, we're still in many ways, most people are still children, but they just in big, big kids, you know, bodies. So, uh, but here's the interesting thing. And I found this with a client recently is I had this very conversation that this woman was at a group in a group like this. And it turned out that most of the people, everyone ordered wine. It turned out that most of the people really didn't want wine. 
but they were afraid of being the one person who didn't drink. So everyone got wine, but very few really even wanted it. So what if you go to an environment where no one really wants to drink, but everyone's doing it because they don't want to be the one person that doesn't. So everyone is living a lie because they're afraid of being the one person who's the outsider. So basically everyone rejects their own true desire, which suppresses self-worth because it puts other people's needs ahead of your own and it devalues you and your own wants and needs and says what I want and need for me is unimportant. I'm going to succumb to the social pressure of what I perceive people want and then Everyone drinks alcohol. No one really wants it. I'm not saying this in general, but, but in this kind of situation. Hypothetically, imagine that, how foolish that is. And so I said to her, she was, she's a CEO and she's working on some projects. And I said, you're a leader, right? She said, well, in my business. I said, well, then take the lead in your life. And if you decide you want to quit drinking, then you go to that. She's, well, I have to, you know, I don't want to be antisocial. I said, well, wait a sec. Who, where, where did that belief come from that it's antisocial to not drink alcohol. I said, boy, that's a, a mind virus, isn't it? Who hypnotized you with that? And that's, that's a society we live in. So she had this belief, like I talked about the root issue. Now, there may be other things going on in her life, but for this particular environment, she had a belief, Connor, that said basically to be social with potential clients and business associates, I need to drink alcohol. Now, clinically speaking, that's bullshit. Right? I mean, fundamentally, that's not true, but she believed it and therefore felt uncomfortable because she needed to be social to get the business or to interact with these people. I hear this a lot. Well, we're going, I'm business associates. I have to, who says you can't raise a, some other drink? I mean, you know, people don't even realize why they, why they clink glasses and say cheers. Wasn't that something to do about people sitting at a round table and they were worried about the other people poisoning them so they'd spill the drink and everybody's to make sure yeah well, if i'm getting poisoned you're going to get poisoned from too. what i understand that's what it is of course it was with usually metal or porcelain you know like hard you don't do it with glass so you're supposed to do it hard so that you're really sloshing the drinks and uh, but we do so many things and we're not even aware why we do it and most people when they drink alcohol or they smoke or they overeat it's not why they are doing it i had a client once who had uh Real, real summary of this, she was like 60 years old, had been overweight for 50 pounds overweight for a long time, and she thought it was just stress eating. She just thought it was her husband who you know, would stress her out, and she would go have a glass of wine and cheese and crackers every night at home after eating dinner. And you know, obviously, this made weight loss difficult. And as we were working on that, it, through one of the techniques we were doing, we were working on the, the root of the feeling of stress. And basically, it it brought her back to a memory when she was seven or eight years old where she believed for the first time that her father didn't really love her. Now, it, it, the details of it are not as important, but she believed that her dad didn't love her. So she grew up believing at a subconscious emotional level that she wasn't worthy of love because daddy didn't love her. Her mom loved her, but dad didn't. He loved her brothers, not her. So she grew up with this kind of hole that she was always trying to fill. Did she become a stripper? Um, well, because I feel like the girls with the daddy issues. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't know what she did in her twenties. She was sixty, and I, you know, I wasn't trying to imagine her as a. As, I mean, she, if she was <laughs> a stripper, point. she wasn't still in the field, but in that in that line of work. But but my point is, when we dealt with the emotional trauma, if you will, of that experience, she we, and and it was maybe it took twenty minutes. We were working through it. She tears started coming down. She just, you know, and then at the end of it, she said that was really big. And I said, what, 
you know, what happened. And I mean, I, we were talking, so I kind of knew what happened, but she explained it to me. She said, I now feel for the first time that my dad's always loved me. And it was based on the work we did with that memory. That's how quick the work you asked, how quick the work can be. Um, so basically that quickly, it shifted her perception of her past and herself. Then at the end of her session, she went home, came back the next week. I asked how things have been going. She said, amazing. I haven't done any stress eating this whole week. Uh, husband's behavior had not changed, but hers had. She just felt so much better. And then she went on to lose, last time I talked to her, 30, 40 pounds. Wow. So really, the, it's not what you're eating. It's what's eating you. Right. And it's the same thing with drinking and all that. And if you, if when we dealt with the original injury, basically, her perception of an injury, her self-worth issue relating to being rejected by her father, that was really what, why she was overeating. It was not because of her husband. And it's not because the food tastes really good or because she loves food or because it's boring to eat kale. Those are all rational lies. The real reason, which she was unaware of, was because she had never felt good enough. And that not feeling good enough created an underlying anxiety or lack of I guess you could say a mild unhappiness. It wasn't so bad that, you know, it was like massive. She wasn't 400 pounds, but the point is it was enough to make her feel uncomfortable. And guess what? When you're uncomfortable, what do you do? Eat, drink, smoke, whatever. And for her, it was eating and drinking. She felt good. And it just rinse and repeat. But until she dealt with the real issue, no matter what diet she did, and even if we had done hypnosis just on, on eating habits, probably wouldn't have worked. Or maybe it would have been temporary because, again, the roots of the weeds are there. So when I come back to which is more important, is it the hypnosis or is it the understanding you know, human behavior? They're both important. It's just that if we're doing the best hypnosis or the best NLP or neurolinguistic programming, and that was actually the, the type of technique was under the umbrella of NLP, which is related to hypnosis for your listeners who don't know. And... That the best techniques focused on the wrong target or the symptom would not be nearly as effective as it would be if you can figure out what's really causing the problem. The real problem was not the eating. The real problem was not the husband. The real problem was not the stress. The real problem was her feeling of rejection and not being good enough, which is only a belief. She wasn't born with that. She learned it. And it just happened just the same way when people have post-traumatic stress it's something, it's not the event. It's not her father's fault. It's not the event that did it. It's her perception of the event. When people go, when people are in foster care and, and the foster children have a higher incidence of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, than even military veterans, but it's very high. Really? I, did, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, that's that's, I, I did some work with a foster organization some years ago, and I, I was surprised too, because we all think about veterans, right? But foster care, kids go through a lot of crap. So the point is both of those groups I don't remember the percentages, but it's it's significant. It's well into the double digits. And it's not because the person was in foster care and was abused. It's not because the person was molested or raped. It's not because the person saw his, you know, his fellow soldier buddy get killed in front of him. That's not why they have the trauma. They have the trauma because of how they remember it and the things they've learned about themselves and the world as a result of that experience. So we can't change the past, but we can, you know, the work we do is helping someone shift their perspective or their perception of the past, which then allows their behavior or their belief to change. You know, instead of it being like, I'm in danger, 
someone who has post-traumatic stress typically has a belief, I'm not safe, typically in, in certain environments. That's why there are triggers. I'm not safe around men with mustaches. I'm not safe in on an airplane. I'm not safe in certain, you know, in, in a sexual situation because of what happened before. It's not because of what happened. It's what the person learned. The belief creates the anxiety, and then the anxiety creates coping mechanisms to remove the anxiety, and that's where you know the undesirable habits come in. So it's really a pyramiding of of the root cause and then a layer of symptoms. And our society tends to focus on symptoms, which is great if you're a provider of a treatment, if you're if you're providing weed trimming services, you know, and you come, you know, like people grow, you know, you have the, the landscaper come and, and cut your grass every two weeks or something. You know, that's great. <clears throat> but if it's a weed and you don't want it there, why, why just trim it? It's going to keep coming back. But if you're selling the services for weed trimming, that's great for you as the weed trimmer, you know, but if, if the person really wants to get rid of it, you're not going to do it just by talking about how you feel and what happened and again and again. And there's some value to that, but doing it again and again is doing nothing but just reinforcing the story. And I say this not out of any kind of dispassion or, or contempt for people who have been traumatized. On the contrary, people who post-traumatic stress and all of the symptoms, whether it's addictions or, or relationship problems or anger issues, those are in most cases fairly straightforward and manageable in terms of being able to actually resolve it. But people have come to believe that if you've been traumatized or something, you know, quote, bad has happened to you and your perception of it is that it's bad. PTSD is curable, right? Why, well, you know, again, different things around. I, I don't even like the word cure because that's assuming you call it a disease or an illness, which I don't believe it is. I think it's a thinking problem and it's a thinking problem paired with a certain emotional or psychophysiological, you know, mind-body conditioning. So if someone has learned that they're unsafe and that something, quote, bad happened to them in a certain environment, and then they have some chemical and physiological reaction, like a fight-or-flight response, and then they create associations between that experience and visual and auditory and olfactory cues. You know, when I see something, hear something, smell something, feel something, it reminds me at a very, you know, very unconscious level. Then though that becomes, that can become post-traumatic, diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, as a hypnotist, I don't diagnose people. Most people come to me and they say, oh, I was diagnosed with PTSD or I'm diagnosed with anxiety or I think I have it. And that's really secondary. The bottom line is it's a thinking problem. And when someone deals with the problem the way they're thinking about it, which can sometimes be really quick. You know, I've seen people who were, who were raped by multiple men in the same setting. Uh, a woman who, uh, who found her husband in his car having blown his head off. And she wasn't able to sleep for 10 years without taking sleep meds. Um, all kinds of things. You know, my wife, Gina, she's seen someone who was a sex slave who was sold into that by her mom uh, from teenage years. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are really objectively. Do these things ever haunt you, some of the things that you hear? No. Okay. Because, you know, I think partly because we don't, we don't dwell in the woundology. We don't dwell in the problem. And do the two of you hypnotize each other? to do hypnosis therapy? <laughs> Actually, sometimes we do. I mean, she's amazing. And so sometimes we, you know, 
we can do self-hypnosis, but it's always better to have someone objectively. And so we do that. But my, so the point is with all these things, we've seen people with, with what you would objectively say are, you know, extreme, you know, awful kind of things that no one should ever have to go through. And yet in all these cases and many more, we were able to pull the thorn out, pull the roots out that the thorn that was in their side for all these years, causing them to scratch and itch and put anti-itch cream on it to deal with the discomfort or painkillers when it's like, well, why don't we just pull the thorn out? And the thorn was the event, what was the perception of the event or events or experiences in their life. And uh, a client recently that I finished seeing months ago, she was referred to me by a trainer, personal trainer. She was very overweight. And basically what happened was when she was, she was probably 30, when she was 12, her mother took her to a doctor for something and basically he molested her in full view of the mother under the guise of a medical exam and her mother did nothing they never talked about it she knew it was it was inappropriate and wrong for the guy to do that that the daughter was um and then several years later when she had sex for the first time boom she started gaining weight her thyroid got imbalanced and she gained well over 100 pounds and ultimately it was really her the body's response. Yeah, I, wow. that's what I believe. And when we dealt with the, the um, not only the anger at the mom, but that was also a symptom of who knows what her mom was thinking. You know, her mom had also been abusive to her, so who knows what was going on there. But ultimately, her shame and her anger of and her anger at herself for allowing the doctor to do that because she resisted at first, but he persuaded her, and he she you know she could have fought him off. It wasn't like she was five. But she didn't. And most people, a lot of people who are raped um, or violated in, in that way blame themselves for allowing themselves to be in that situation, even if it's not their fault at all. So she had to forgive herself. She had to you know, forgive or accept the guy, the doctor who did this, and her mother. And then once she was able to do that, the emotional eating went away. Wow. So, and, and you know, I haven't done the follow-up to know if her thyroid became balanced but that's also possible too because our physiology is influenced so heavily by our thinking that when our thinking changes then our cells change the chemistry in our body changes and hormones can get balanced stress levels come down uh one of the things i wanted to well, a couple of things before you talk about your practice at the end well there's a couple of questions i wanted to ask you uh, i know one of them you mentioned before but i just want to address it for the listeners out there but first of all what is the history of hypnosis? I know I have Google and I can look this up, but I don't really know. And I'm sure, you know, you being in hypnosis, you would know this. Yeah, well, the in the mid to late 19th century, there were people called mesmerists. And this is, you know, Anton Mesmer, who was, you know, mesmerizing people. He was just some guy in the, uh, uh, you know, in the late 18th century. And he... And that's where the word mesmerizing comes from? Exactly. So he basically... Well, you know, not to get too far into this because this is not really hypnosis, but basically he had certain things where he would work with people who had what we would probably call neurotic tendencies today or, you know, certain emotional issues and certain health issues. And he was a doctor and he found that they, he was able to cure them of that by inducing, well, what he thought was some flu, you know, energetic fluid that 
fluid, fluid who went through all things. He called it animal magnetism. It's not the same as we think when we attract a woman or a guy, that's animal magnetism. It was some sort of phenomenon. And what was really happening was he was actually using the power of suggestion after inducing a state of hypnosis that he was unaware that that was what was happening. He thought it was something he did and that is some power that he had. So eventually he was ridiculed and run out of, of town basically for being a, you know, a charlatan. But yet the, these physicians in the 19th century, because the early hypnotists were all physicians, they practiced some form of mesmerism and they were studying it. And there was a guy named James Braid who was a Scottish physician and he was he was the man who coined the term hypnosis. Hypnos is the Greek god of sleep. So he thought that these patients of his were sleeping. And in fact, they were not asleep. They were hypnotized. But if you look at someone who you know, their eyes are closed, they're very relaxed, there's other physiological markers of being deeply relaxed or in many cases, uh, completely immobile, not because they can't move, but because there's a lack of voluntary movement typically, they look like they're asleep. So he called it that and the, the name caught on and realized later on, regrettably, that it was not sleep. It was a distinct state, but that's what it was called. So that has led to a lot of misconceptions over the years. But basically, the brief history of hypnosis is that in the second half of the 19th century, it was used primarily for medical purposes or for helping people with uh, psychological issues, or it was even used as a form of anesthesia before they invented painkillers. You know, they did amputations and surgeries. James Esdale was a, a physician who worked in hospitals, trauma hospitals in India, and he, you know, would amputate people's legs and stuff under, under a hypnotic or, uh, you know, hypnotic state and reduce the mortality rate from 25 to 5% in that hospital because of that kind of intervention so that's so amazing kind of the early days of anesthesia exactly and it still can be used that way for people who i mean i've done that when i've had several dental procedures you know drilling my teeth and getting fillings replaced um and i've you know the last three times i've done that i've opted for no novocaine and i just did self-hypnosis how do you do self-hypnosis well it's it takes some practice but ultimately it's just about regulating your your Is state something of mind you can watch like a youtube video on um Probably. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's some some good stuff out there, but ultimately there's many different ways of doing it, but ultimately it's about focusing your attention on something, excluding one thing, bringing your awareness to something else, and managing your emotional state or physiological state. You know, people when they, pain is directly linked to to stress. So when someone is stressed or fearful, they're more tense, more likely to have uh, elevated pain sensitivity. And so when you reduce that, and then you focus on something other than the belief or the perception that something that's happening to you is painful, then you can reduce that pain, whether it's chronic or acute. Um, but ultimately, with hypnotism, it pretty much, when Freud, in the late 19th century, he, the, the father of uh, psychotherapy, he first learned hypnotism. And because of his own emotional issues, was unable to have real eye-to-eye -eye contact with a lot of people, his patients that he worked with. So he was not able to be an effective hypnotist. So he abandoned that, developed free association as his way of communicating with the subconscious. And when he became really popular, hypnotism fell out of, the clinical hypnotism fell out of favor. So in the 
first half of the 20th century, the only hypnotists to actually keep the field alive were the stage hypnotists, the comedians, the ones who did it for entertainment purposes. And they pioneered a lot of really impressive techniques for quick hypnotic inductions and a lot of, and kept people interested. And then uh, in the mid 20th century, uh, a fellow named Dave Ellman, who was primarily vaudevillian and, and a, an entertainer, uh, stage hypnotist, he trained medicine, um, dentists and uh, medical doctors on how to do hypnosis for their patients. So that brought a lot of legitimacy to it. And so that's where the term hypnotherapy came from. And then from there, it's just grown. And today, it's our profession is a separate and distinct profession from psychotherapy and from medicine. We're not healthcare practitioners. It's kind of on the border of a lot of these areas, but it's at a greater level of awareness and acceptance than ever before. And it's just continuing to grow as people realize that they don't need to be dependent on a system. They can be empowered and take back control of their health, starting with the way you know that we think. How did you get into hyp hypnosis and decide on this career choice? Okay, that's a great question. Well, remember earlier I told you when I was 20 or so and I had a really difficult year in school, I, um, you know, I was overweight, I was miserable, and ultimately realized through, it wasn't through hypnosis. I mean, if I had known, if I had known myself back then or someone like me, it would have been a lot faster of a change. But I realized I had to take responsibility for my own thoughts, and really, it was my own, my own thinking that was causing me to be unhappy. Not to mention all the crap I was eating. So those two together, when I started changing how I was eating, and practicing stress management, and and taking responsibility for myself instead of blaming people for my state, then I started feeling better immediately. And so after I had this kind of complete 180 degree shift over the course of switching from junior to senior year, I, you know, I lost the weight. My grades went from like a C minus to an A minus. And, um, I was feeling so much better in, in every way, socially and, and everything. And I said, you know, I want to do this for other people. So I applied to a graduate program in Boston to, for nutrition. And I thought I was going to save the world, you know, one fat person at a time and do it, <laughs> do it, do it through the food. And while that's important, the thing is that I realized in three years of, of training as a nutritionist, they never told me that I recall that you're going to go out there. Most of your clients are going to be weight loss clients. Most of them will not get good results with your brilliant knowledge because there is some underlying reason why they're eating what they're eating. Like the woman, like the women I've told you, the, the woman who was molested, the woman who was rejected by her dad, countless others. It's not just weight, but that's just a great example we can all relate to. They're eating for a reason. And if you're not dealing with the emotional reason or need that is bringing them about to, to have that eating issue, which is causing them to be overweight, then they're not going to respond just by following a meal plan. I didn't know this. And so most of the people I worked with had very short-lived results. They were frustrated. I was frustrated. I said, well, I got a great education. Not worth much, though. So I got out of that field and got into, you know, marketing consulting and market research, totally different for several years. And then back in 2006, started, you know, I, I had been reading about why is it, if we know what to do, why don't we do what we know? And it's really all about the subconscious mind, the irrational emotional part of us that is much more powerful than our logical willpower based conscious mind. So what we need 
for self-preservation or comfort right now is far more important than what we think we need for our long-term goals. And this is why people sabotage themselves. This is why we have internal conflict, like an angel on one shoulder telling us to eat healthy and the devil on the other saying, come on, just have a piece of pizza. It's just one slice or just one pizza or you can work out tomorrow. Oh, I worked out this week. I can have the cheesecake. You know, so we have this internal battle and usually the subconscious wins. And so I figured out through my research that hypnosis and NLP, neurolinguistic programming, are the two methodologies that are most effective at shifting the subconscious. And until you do that, all of the superficial behavior modification or talk therapy is going to have limited effect. And so then I studied and I trained with, with an expert, a couple of different experts who mentored me in, in the field, which is how it works in our field, became certified. And then in 2007, opened the Miami Hypnosis Center. One other quick question. Sure. Because um, I know other people have asked this all the time. Can you hypnotize somebody into falling in love with you? Not, um, strictly speaking, no. But falling in love is, in a way, a hypnotic state. So if you're, you know, for those single guys out there looking for a way to manipulate <laughs> the neurolinguistic programming. I think you of, asked me this years ago. Yeah, um, we were talking about, like, there, you know, the, the okay. pickup artist and people like that. Yeah, there are ways to influence people. There are ways, there are certainly the things that, that I do can be used in a manipulative way uh, or an unethical way. After all, who do you think designs a lot of the ads that we see on TV? I'm sure they know, some of those people know what I know. They yeah, know how to use- Dig into the history of public relations, obviously. It's... Yeah, propaganda, right? So it's we have to know how the mind works and how to manipulate people with, with emotion and with, with uh, images and music. And so, yes, you can influence people, but not fall in love with you. You can, if someone is on the fence, you can push them over, but you can't really get them from someone who's completely not interested in you to someone who's going to sleep with you or want to marry you. You can't do that. If you do, it, it usually takes a very long period of time with a lot of conditioning. So the short answer is to your question, no, you can't hypnotize someone to fall in love with you. Although I think that's what my wife did. I'm kidding. <laughs> it was actually very easy. Um and then we have a few minutes because I know you have a patient coming in soon. Uh, talk about where people can find you, social media, online, what the, the, you know, we're at the Miami Hypnosis Center here in Miami Beach. Any other services you offer? Talk about that for a couple minutes and then we'll wrap this up. Oh, cool. Sure. So our website is MiamiHypnosisCenter.com and we are uh, moving to Sedona, Arizona, actually, at the end of this year, 2018. So we will not have a physical presence in Miami, but we will see some clients by Skype. But primarily what, what our business is shifting towards is something on a much broader scale, which is group coaching through the web or phone, where on an ongoing basis, we have phone sessions or, or web sessions, basically, where we can we're explaining certain concepts. Um, starting with health and wellness, and then we're also going to be launching one relating to relationships and another one for you know, procrastination and goals and money and success and that whole sphere. Ultimately, it's about education, kind of like the topics we're talking about here, things that hopefully you know, you've been listening to this and, it, and you're thinking, wow, that's really interesting, or I never thought of it that way. And, and, and really what we want to do is cultivate 
a fascination with, with the human condition. When you understand yourself and other people, you're able to treat yourself and other people better. And really, that's kind of what our mission is. So we're, we're doing this group coaching. It's a blend between a master class and human behavior and group online coaching. So each, each call or session we have is teaching a concept or a topic, taking some Q&A, maybe doing a, a process or hypnotic uh, technique or experience, and giving specific homework or suggestions for how to integrate those learnings into your life over the coming weeks. Uh, it's great if you, you know, you learn something really interesting, but if you don't do anything with that information, then it just becomes, it just gathers dust or disappears. So the key is not just education, but integration and then activation. If you can do all three of those things, then you learn. And so this is going to be part of a, um, you know, an annual membership program that we have that people can over the course of a year, continually grow and, and progress and, and bit by bit resolve a lot of the issues they have in their life, whether it's you know relationships or health and wellness or personal, professional, goal-related issues. So that's the primary thing. And we also have some retreats that we're doing in Sedona, which is an amazing place in Arizona, um, truly like heaven on earth in many ways, and uh, seminars and other sort of things. But primarily, you know, people can find us at MiamiHypnosisCenter.com and We'll continually update that page with more information even after we're no longer physically here in Miami. How long will you be physically here in Miami for? Uh, for another, till the end of November. Till so the end of November, okay. So people can still come out here if they want to seek your services. Sure. Because we'll probably release this in the next couple of weeks. I sure. Have, I have one I recorded yesterday with Omar Cordero who started several different companies before, mainly in the fitness industry. So I'm going to release that one and then we'll release this one. I'll let you know ahead of time in case you want to, you know, I'm sure you'll want to listen to it or promote it at all. I'd love to listen to it. I'd love to hear what I had to say. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Because I know you, we have, uh, it's 12, just turned 12.58. I know you have a patient coming in. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you too. I feel like I could keep going. We're at an hour and 20 minutes. I, I could keep talking to you for a I, long by time. The way, we'll I, have to do this again. I talk for a living. I love I love this stuff. And as you can tell, you know, it's it's really interesting. And, and uh, so, sure. Anytime. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to do it again. Thank you, you very it. much, Todd Goodwin. We are wrapping this up. Uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Connor. Take care.